You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, September 29th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. California is legendary for its surfing lore, but to our south are thousands of miles of coastline and a world of beach culture that is largely unknown. The California Report uncovers the lost history of Mexican surfing with help from two amateur historians. After regional news and weather, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza talks to the master bridge right who oversaw the restoration of our Bridgeport treasure. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Mari Bolaños in San Francisco. Los Angeles is receiving millions in state funding to help launch a program to combat homelessness among the formerly incarcerated. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi has more. $15 million has been allocated to the nonprofit Impact Justice to start up the homecoming project in the Los Angeles area. The program launched in Alameda County in 2018 and expanded to Contra Costa County last year. It pairs individuals who are leaving prison with homeowners who have a spare room and want to help with the reentry process. Alex Busansky is president of Impact Justice. We're going to use these dollars to open doors, to homes, to jobs, and to other life-expanding and enriching opportunities that pay dividends when the beneficiaries of these opportunities give back to their communities. And they do, and we see that every day. The program pays the homeowner a stipend rather than have the individual that's staying with them pay rent. It also provides services to those who were incarcerated to help with the adjustment to life outside of prison. Los Angeles Assemblymember Wendy Carrillo is one of the lawmakers who pushed for funding the program. For far too long, thousands of families across California have struggled with recidivism, systematically being fed into a destructive cycle that brings people in and out of prison and continues poverty across our state. The goal is to get the homecoming project up and running in the greater Los Angeles area by next year, with hopes of eventually expanding it statewide. For the California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Ensenada is the birthplace of Mexican surfing. It's a rich history, but many people don't know about it. Now, two surfers from Ensenada have set out to change that. Here's KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. The Baja coast has always had amazing waves. But when Ignacio Felix was growing up in Ensenada during the 1960s, surfboards were a rare commodity. Nosotros de vez en cuando veíamos un americano llegar a Ensenada con una tal en el techo. Felix says that it wasn't like today in Ensenada, where surfboards are everywhere. He'd only see them whenever American tourists with boards strapped to the roof of their cars drove into town. Felix was among a group of curious children who spent hours on the beach, just sitting there in the sand watching the surfers catch waves. As he grew older, his curiosity turned into a passion, and he became one of the original co-founders of the Baja Surf Club, the oldest surf club in Mexico. Felix remembers being starstruck when surfing legends that he'd only seen in magazines came to Ensenada for a contest he helped organize. Figuras como Mike Doyle, eh, Mickey Muñoz, David Nueva, hasta Mickey Dora llegó. By the time Pete Torres had first picked up a board in the 1970s, surfing had become more popular in Mexico, but it still had a stigma. He says it was mostly associated with long hair, hippies, and drugs. Surfing was 
Mexico has thousands of miles of coastline and several world-class surf destinations. Thanks to these natural gifts, it also has a rich surfing history, full of adventurers who discovered new waves and spread the sport down the country's Pacific coast, all the while fighting a government that didn't want them around. But few people are familiar with that history. Torres and Jesus Salazar are trying to change that. They started documenting the origins of Mexican surfing through a podcast and Instagram page called Memorabilia del Surfing Mexicano. Salazar says that places like Acapulco and Puerto Escondido are known all over the world, but the stories of the people who actually developed the sport, they are not. And that's like the main objective, you know, like to talk about uh, surfing culture, Mexican surfing culture, and to start to give it uh, an identity to Mexican surf, because there is none. The project has taken them to famous beaches of Mazatlán, Guerrero, Oaxaca, and Nayarit. They've tracked down historic photographs and interviewed the pioneers of Mexican surfing. It's amazing to see, to hold the history in your hands. Torres and Salazar say one of the most important moments in Mexican surf history happened in 1970. After Felix and the other members of the Baja Surf Club performed well in the 1968 World Championships of Puerto Rico, they put in a bid to host the tournament in 1970. Against all odds, they won the bid, beating surf heavyweights Australia and South Africa. Felix says that nobody expected them to actually get the world championship. The governor of Baja California and mayor of Ensenada just couldn't believe it. Como que nos apoyaron creyendo que éramos eh, pues unos chamacos que estaban medio locos, que no íbamos a traer nada y de pronto aquí está el mundial. They even secured a broadcasting deal with ABC's Wide World of Sports. The event was going to put Mexican surfing on the map. Pero el gobierno mexicano dijo no queremos que Ensenada but the cultural upheaval of the late 1960s was in full swing, and Woodstock had just made international headlines. The Mexican government wasn't interested in a south-of-the-border version of that chaotic scene. So they canceled the event. Se convierta en un lugar en donde los hippies de California vengan y lo adopten. Felix says that they didn't want Ensenada to become a campground for California hippies. That decision derailed the future of competitive surfing in Mexico. The country wouldn't go to another world championship until 1988, the year Torres was on the team. Nowadays, Salazar says that it's very important for those who actually live the history to tell their own stories. Americans have come a lot and, and made all kinds of stories about surfing in Mexico, and they tell very little about Mexicans. We feel it's important to get stories about Mexicans out there, you know, we think it's very important. Lately, their efforts have started to pay off. Salazar and Torres recently contributed research to an article on Acapulco surf culture for the latest edition of the Surfer's Journal. They see that collaboration with one of the most widely read surf magazines in the world as recognition of the important work that they're doing. Next, Salazar and Torres say that they hope to bring a photo exhibition showing the rich history of Mexican surfing to Ensenada and Southern California before the end of the year. For the California Report, I'm Gustavo Solis in San Diego. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration 
on the web at schmidtocean.org. And that's the California Report for Thursday, September 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, Governor Gavin Newsom has vetoed a bill that would have allowed payment of unemployment benefits to undocumented immigrants. As reported in today's Sacramento Bee, the bill, known as the Excluded Workers Pilot Program, would have provided up to $300 a week for 20 weeks to unemployed individuals. To qualify, applicants would have had to demonstrate they were California residents, unemployed for at least one week, and ineligible for state unemployment insurance. The state's Employment Development Department currently distributes unemployment insurance. It is only available to residents who are working legally in this country. The pilot program would have been administered separately from EDD. The B reports that Newsom vetoed the bill late Wednesday. In his veto message, the governor cited the bill's potential cost. He wrote that it would have cost the state $200 million to launch the program and about $20 million a year to sustain it. Roughly 140,000 undocumented residents would have been eligible for the program, according to an analysis last March from the UC Merced Community and Labor Center. That study also found that undocumented workers fill one in 16 jobs in the state and generate $3.7 billion in state and local tax revenues. The Shasta County Elections Office said this week that aggressive individuals impersonating election officials have reportedly been knocking on county residents' doors and questioning their voter registration status. The Shasta County clerk, Kathy Darling-Allen, told the website sfgate.com that the individuals were, quote, wearing very distinctive neon vests and some kind of ID badge that says Voter Task Force. She added, we are being told that these people are being very aggressive and intimating that they work in this office when they do not. We want voters to know that this isn't an official effort. We have a whole host of tools we use to verify info. Door knocking is not something we would ever do. Allen told SFGate she assumes that members of the fake voter task force are individuals who believe, incorrectly, that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from former President Donald Trump. In the time since that election, Allen said her office has become a, quote, dumping ground for frustrations, unquote. She said she has had to deal with matters ranging from frivolous public records requests to demands that the office preserve records it is required to destroy under state law. Allen said she has referred the matter to local law enforcement. The Reading Police Department told SFGate that investigation is ongoing. And a couple of traffic alerts. Caltrans wants drivers on Interstate 80 in Truckee to know that the Central Truckee eastbound off-ramp, that's exit 186, will be closed through 5 p.m. Monday. And in Grass Valley, the Penn Gate parking lot and a portion of the Hard Rock Trail near the Sand Dam at Empire Mine State Historic Park will be closed October 6 through November 5 for maintenance work. Turning to the forecast from the National Weather Service and air quality data from purpleair.com, more sunny, warm, clear days are on tap with locally breezy conditions in the valley through Friday. It will be clear tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley with a low around 56. This afternoon's air quality index was measuring in the single digits. Friday will be sunny with a high near 84 and a low of 58. 
In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, mostly clear with a low around 38. The air quality index this afternoon was averaging around 10. Friday, expect sunshine with a high near 70 and a low of 37. In Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear with a low of 59. Today's air quality index is averaging about 15. Friday will be sunny with a high near 89 and a low close to 60 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Master Bridgewright Tim Andrews spent more than two years overseeing the restoration of the beloved historic covered bridge at Bridgeport. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza caught up with Andrews last week as he returned to South Yuba River State Park to check out the stability of the project a year after its completion. The Bridgeport covered bridge in South Yuba River State Park was closed to pedestrian traffic in 2011 due to safety concerns, but thanks to the dedicated efforts of many people, reopened in 2021. Last week, while standing on the northern side of the 210-foot span, I talked to the bridge right in charge of restoring the historic covered walkway. Well, um, my name's Tim Andrews, and back east I own a company called Burns and Bridges of New England. I try to specialize in covered bridge restoration and new construction. And I worked with Spectre Company and California State Parks for 26 months restoring this bridge. We're back out here a year after completion just to see how things are doing, make sure that the superstructure is stable. And so what does that involve? Some testing and monitoring. Some of it's very high tech using uh, harmonics to check the iron verticals in the trusses, see if they're relaxed a little bit. You know, checking the arch pressures at the abutment because of the two critical components, the arch has to carry at least half the weight of the bridge, plus all the people weight. So we wanted to check and see if things were stable. So that's what we've been doing for the last two days. And I assume that part of the maintenance is going to be, I mean, is there a torque spec to all of these? or? Um, well, uh, an experienced bridge right will know just by harmonics using his ear that you know that the things are under proper tension and then camber which is a crown in the bridge if you maintain your camber or if you're losing camber then you know you probably want to retighten those vertical truss rods and so how often will this bridge need to be maintained in that way well right now we're on a schedule to do it annually only because uh, we want the wood to fully, fully dry. You know, it came partially dried, uh, artificially dried, but large timbers can take a long time to dry. So with shrinking timber, you get a change in geometry. So we're going to watch it every year for the next several years. But then it should become stable. When the wood becomes stable, there won't be a need to revisit it. Why covered bridges? So. Everything that's working here to keep people out of the river, <laughs> make it a safe crossing, are the trusses. In layman's terms, those are the two sidewalls. With the iron rods and the heavy timbers, you cover it, protect those. You protect the superstructure so it never gets wet enough to start decay and rot. How long can a bridge like this properly maintain? 
last? It's, it's a long established saying, but it's not a fable. If you keep wood dry, it lasts indefinitely. And that's, that's again, that's not folklore. That's there's scientific proof out there. But typically, a, an existing covered bridge gets to be 135 years. It's time for a major look at see what's, you know, intervention, re repair, replace defective components. But you keep this bridge here dry, you won't have to intervene for another 100 years. I mean, this is a beautiful bridge. It's all shingled in cedar, it looks like. Yes, it's all western red cedar. Which means that it doesn't need any sort of oiling. It doesn't need any sort of... Well, these shingles in particular got a a coating, a um, pressure-treated fire retardant, which also has some water repellency characteristics. The Bridgeport-covered bridge is a hybrid design. Tim called it a how-truss bridge with a supplemental burr arch. This is a unique combination. Where there might have been hundreds of this configuration across the country, I'm not aware that any exists except for this bridge. The design utilizes truss rods, vertical iron rods that clamp the top and bottom of the bridge together. One of the most interesting features that Tim pointed out while we were talking were the original iron rods still bearing their original manufacturing stamps. These are modern steel. Mm -hmm. They replaced the original iron truss rods. Mm -hmm. And many of them carried uh, Maker's Mark stamps, which is really fascinating. It was like a Blue's Clues search for us. Working with the National Park Service and their resources, there's 17 different Maker's Marks stamped on the various rods that were original to the bridge, and all of them come from England. Because in 1862, England was at the pinnacle of uh, quality and purity in iron. Because we were in the middle of, of the start of the Civil War. That's John Rebensdorf. He's the inspector who worked on the restoration with Tim. So most of our iron was going to the war efforts, so when they were building bridges like this, they couldn't find the metal that they needed to do the construction. So they had to go all over to find it. In fact, we had maker marks from Australia, was that the? Australia. Yeah, Australia. Yeah, the Netherlands. Yeah, Netherlands, all, all over the yeah, place. But a lion's share of them were, we found the maker's marks from old publications and advertisements. Although many of the original wrought iron rods were replaced with new steel rods, Tim and his crew were able to leave some of the originals in service. At the very ends of the bridge, kind of like nestled in between two large timbers, anybody visiting the bridge, there's eight rods total, two per corner, and the Maker's Mark stamps are visible to the naked eye. We purposely placed them in that position so future visitors can get a sense of the history of this bridge. The one we're looking at now is Chillington Best Refined, is how it's stamped, and it's got the crown, the crown of the, the Queen of England, which was Victoria at the time. Tim is fully aware of the dangers of wildfire in our area. Before I said goodbye, I asked him if there was anything he wanted to share with our audience. I hope the community at large will take some comfort that 100% of the structure has been protected with a fire retardant coating. Master Bridge Wright, Tim Andrews, will return next September to check his work and to ensure that visitors to the South Yuba River State Park can enjoy the Bridgeport-covered bridge for years to come. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet.
I think for me, a white, middle-aged, small-town, first-world poet, an early sign of societal collapse is revealed in this box of ecological kitchen garbage bags I have in my hand. They come in a roll of 25, pale green, a little flimsy. I've bought them for years. Suddenly, only half the requisite perforations are included, so I must find the scissors and cut the plastic myself to use every other one. This is such a great example because it's so minor and yet so annoying. I'm not looking up on Google what percent of the world population even uses garbage bags, much less ecological ones, but you know it's a privilege. One of the thousands I don't notice until it stops working. My second example is even more minor and only annoying to people who still eat sugar and have slight OCD leanings, naming no names. In a typical package of Paul Newman's organic Oreo equivalent cookies, five or six out of a total of 24 units have one of the wafers on backwards. Each cookie is made of two wafers plus filling, and each wafer is embossed on one side only. The flat side is supposed to face the filling and the embossed side face the world. I know you think I've really lost it this time, but hang in there. Garbage bags and cookies like this are made by machines. Something has gone wrong with at least one of the machines in each of these factories and not been fixed yet. Whoever is in charge of fixing machinery is lagging, or whoever does quality control hasn't noticed yet. Maybe it's the reputed labor shortage or a supply chain issue. The new machines are delayed on Chinese container ships off the coast of Barbados. I don't know. As these errors are not life-threatening, a company wouldn't have to recall the product. Perhaps this is a one-time glitch and perforations will reappear, wafers be affixed, right side too, forever after. Or maybe this is a teensy sign that the world, even the lucky and oblivious first world, is beginning to come apart at the seams. I'm writing this by a window, out of which I can see our recycling bin, which was not picked up yesterday at its normal time. Last week, the garbage truck gathered our trash, but not the green waste can, which is full of weeds and yard trimmings. They didn't come for six days, and when I called, said they were having staffing problems. Garbage cans lingering on the street day after day remind me of the New York City garbage strikes in the 70s and how quickly those stoppages immobilized the city. Our carrier, Waste Management, is a huge national company. Are your cans being emptied on schedule? Is this only happening in my town? It doesn't take much to topple the status quo. You can stage a revolution, as the French like to do, and make a lot of noise, or you can just not fix the machine slapping cookies together when it begins to act strangely. After the population gets used to small imperfections, unrepaired roads and burned-out streetlights seem ordinary, and pretty soon people are on their own. I guess we're going to see how this plays out, aren't we? Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
That's our newscast for Thursday, September 29th. But stay tuned. Coming up next at 6.30 is Making Contact, which tonight explores how our individual bodies mirror the disease in society and the environment. Is the world we live in causing the rise in inflammatory illnesses? And can deep medicine point the way back to health? At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Then we get back to our music programming. At 8 p.m., Carl Shalette hosts Jazz Workshop. And at 10, DJ Lamasox will be here with Road Dog Radio. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Friday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. (laughs) 